so good to be here and worship with you guys again. Would you grab a Bible and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1? And this week, we have the pleasure of starting what's going to be about a 15-week journey through the book of Colossians as we continue on our journey through or along our path through what we're calling a ministry season of Christ over all. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to reflect to our community that Jesus is exalted over all things. Jesus is exalted in this world. He's exalted over this world. He's exalted in the church. Jesus is the reason. His exaltation is the reason the church exists. And so we just want to spend uh, the next 15 weeks looking at that. Um, And as you're turning in your Bibles, I got to share with you guys um, something that happened this week. Y'all ever heard... Uh, uh, the phrase, life is stranger than fiction. Um, so uh, our, our nine-year-old, Hudson, recently started soccer. He was playing at his little Christian school and uh, found out he loved playing soccer. So like, all right, let's sign him up for a league. Like he's been playing with like these little Christian kids at a 25-person school. He's ready for league play, right? So we get him signed up for soccer. And then I get the email uh, that came also when we signed him up for t-ball years ago. And that email, if you've ever been a parent, is this. Hey, all our coaches are volunteer, and we would love, like, parents to step up. And so if, if you would love the blessing of coaching your child, think of the memories you'll build. And I'm like, memories are like chewing them out like... <laughs> No. Anyway, uh, so and I emailed them back promptly. And I was like, hey, y'all, I just learned what a soccer ball looked like. You do not want me to coach this team because I know nothing about soccer. So luckily, they found another guy, another dad. His name's Jose. Um, and Jose has uh, eat, lived, and breathed soccer since he was four years old. All four of his kids play soccer. He coaches his kids' high school team. Like, this dude is the rock star. So I show up day one. And I'm the only dad. So guess what Jose does? Hey, you're my assistant coach. Come on. (laughs) Dude, this is not going to go well. He's like, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. It's okay. So we get through one practice, and game one, Coach Jose coaches us to a two-to-one victory. Like, all right, man, we're going to take something. And then uh, yesterday comes game two, and 20 minutes before the game is supposed to start, I get an email. Brad, this is Coach Jose. I can't make it. You're coaching the team today. Like, brother, I have no, I, just to give you an idea of how yesterday went, a kindly coach walked over to me while our team, like, we're feeling good, we're warming up, we're scrimmaging, and this other coach walks over, he's like, hey, I gotta tell you, you're on the wrong field, you ain't even supposed to be over here, man. (laughs) So finally, we make our way over to the right field, and I'm just telling our kids, like, I don't know what to do, just kick the other good kids in the shin, so, like, they're out, like, we'll win because they have no players, I, I didn't tell them that, but... It went so bad. Like, what do I do? What, you can't say no. Like, I'm the only guy, and I'm like, what do I even do here? Um, y'all, ever, y'all ever felt that? Maybe you felt it in Scripture. Have y'all come to your Bible ever, and you're reading, and you're like, man, I know, I know what I'm reading is the Word of God, but I, I just don't feel equipped. I don't even know what to do with this passage. Like, what do I even do? Um, sometimes that's what happens when we come to introductions, And what we're going to look at today is the introduction to Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I think it's something you and I have both probably come to before, and we've breezed right on by. And like, I don't know what to do with it. It's in the Bible. It's part of the Bible, but I I don't even know where to take that. 
Um, well, I want to explore it and see what we actually learn uh, from Scripture from Paul's introduction. So let's read it together. Look at your word, your copy of God's word, and let's read verses 1 and 2 out of chapter 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray before we dive in. God, thank you for this time we have together to study your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fill this place. I pray that you'd speak through me. Let your word in power communicate to each of us. Lord, that as we walk out of here, we would walk out of here this morning having had an encounter with the living God, having been filled with Christ and ready to live him out each day this week. Pray that you'd speak through me and do a, wor- do a work in each of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we read this introduction, I'm going to give you all, typically this is just how I'm going to roll, I'm going to give you guys the end of the very beginning. Here's what we are going to see out of Paul's introduction. This is the main point that I think Paul would want to communicate through these words. We experience the grace and peace of God as we stand on the truth of the gospel. We experience the grace and the peace of God as we stand on the truth of gospel. And some of y'all are going like, I think I'm missing a page. I don't, I don't see that. Like, that's okay. We'll get there. We'll walk through it together. So as we dive in, let's look at verse 1 together. And the first thing we're going to see is that Colossians is divinely inspired truth. And this is critical. If there's one thing that is most critical for us to get today, it's that Colossians is divinely inspired truth, not the ramblings of some madman. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So what we see here is that Paul doesn't write on his own behalf, but he writes on somebody else's behalf. Look at what Paul says here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now let's pick it apart. Maybe you guys have done a deep dive on Paul. Maybe you're really familiar with him, but maybe you're not. So let's walk through who Paul is. Paul was born to a Jewish mom and a Roman dad. So he, he was a Roman citizen, but he was also Jewish, and he picked up on his Jewish heritage and his Jewish faith, and this dude took off running. His parents did the good Jewish thing, and they put him in a Jewish school for young boys. All boys would go through uh, Jewish school and learn the scriptures. They would learn the Torah, the law of God, and they would study up into a certain age. And once they got to a certain age, if they really excelled, then they would be selected to sit under a rabbi to learn more fully the word of God so that maybe they could go on and one day become a rabbi. And so Paul, when he's young, he grows up learning and he excels well beyond all of his other peers. And he excels so well that he's, he's handpicked to sit at the feet of a, a famous rabbi known as Gamaliel. And Gamaliel Um, was well known at that time as um, uh, a really high up rabbi. Like if you wanted to study, you wanted to study under Gamaliel. And he rose through the ranks. The older Paul got, the more he understood the law, the more he was committed to fulfilling the law, the more he'd committed himself like, God, I want to live by your word. And, And so he winds up rising through the ranks and he is on the track to be a Pharisee. This guy is on the Pharisee track, and and to us, we hear Pharisee and we think, man, that's bad, right? If you've been around Christianity for very long, Pharisees usually are not talked about in the best of terms, but, but in Judaism, to raise up and be a Pharisee was like the highest honor. You're the religious elite. You're the highest of the high. You know the law, right? You speak for the law. And Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, 
he doesn't write out of that resume. Paul doesn't say, I am Paul who rose through the ranks of Judaism and became a Pharisee. He doesn't write, I am Paul who studied the law and knows the word of God so intimately that I have authority to write to you because I know the law. That's not what Paul writes here. Paul doesn't come with a resume of his own authority, but what's he write? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so what's an apostle? An apostle, if we break it down into simple words, an apostle is somebody who is commissioned for a specific purpose. So what Paul says is, I am commissioned by Christ Jesus for a specific purpose. An apostle is like an ambassador, an ambassador of a king or an ambassador of a president. And think like um, if John Kerry uh, who had been an ambassador for quite some time in our country, went over to another country and said, hey, let me bring you my message. How long is he going to be an ambassador for the U.S.? About 30 seconds. His goal is to carry forward the message of the president to the country that he's going to build relationships with. An ambassador never carries his own message. A, an ambassador carries the message of the one who sent him. And so when Paul comes and says, I'm an apostle, he's been commissioned for a certain thing. He's an ambassador to carry somebody else's message, and it's not his own. And so, whose? He says in the text, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Flip down in your Bible. Chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Look what Paul says here. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Like, hang on a minute. Like, he's filling up something that Christ is lacking? What could Christ lack? Like, how pride, prideful is this guy, right? Like, we read this and like, what could Christ be lacking? Let's keep looking. In uh, 25... Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To do what? To make the word of God fully known. Paul identifies himself as one who is commissioned out, not that Christ is lacking anything, but Christ has died and ascended into heaven, and no longer lives physically with his people. Paul sees, Paul understands that he has been commissioned by Christ for a specific purpose, that is to carry forward the word of God and to minister the grace of Christ to his church, because Paul can live face to face with these people now. So he says, I am carrying forward Christ's grace, his ministry of grace to you, and I am carrying forward a specific thing, and that is the word of God. You see, when Paul writes, Paul isn't here writing on his own behalf. Paul is here writing on behalf of Christ. And what's the message of Colossians? I'm going to give it to you. Here's the message of Colossians. Here's the takeaway. It's Christ overall. That's it. You see, everything in Scripture, not just in Colossians, everything in Scripture points to the Word of, points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament points forward to Christ, the coming Christ one day who will come and take away the sins of the world. All the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Gospels point at Jesus as he is living. Look, here's the Christ, the Messiah of God, the one who will save the world from their sins. And then the epistles, all of the letters are written looking back at Christ. They point back to him to say, look, he is who he said he is. He did what he said he'd do, and he is God. And then Scripture also points forward to his return because one day he's going to come back in power and he's going to claim all the saints 
taken to live for eternity in heaven. So all scripture points forward to Christ, points at Christ, points back to Christ, or points to his coming. And Colossians joins the chorus of biblical authors to exalt Jesus Christ and to point us to him. That's what Paul's doing. Colossians 1, 15 says this to 17. This is known as, as like the capstone of the book of Colossians. Of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Points to Jesus' glory. Colossians is written not as the ramblings of a madman, but as the divine word of God to reveal Jesus' glory to you and to me. But then we got to ask. We always have to ask the question. In city groups, I love to ask this question. It's called the so what question. So what? What does it mean? Why does it matter? Like, what does it do for us? And we should ask that question here too. What does it matter if this is the divine, revealed, authoritative word of God or not? Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters to me. Here's why it matters to our church, to Mercy Hill, to the leadership. Consider this statistic. 20% of self-proclaimed Christians believe the Bible is the authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. 80% of people who would walk in church on a Sunday morning say, this is not God's word. It's a good book. It's a moral book. It tells you the right way to live your life. It's got some good principles. But God's word? God's word. 80% that walk into the church say it's not God's word. Consider what we learn out of Colossians. I'm going to take you really quick walking through a few verses in Colossians. Colossians 1, 9 to 10 says this. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, we're going to talk about grace and peace in a moment, but there's no grace and peace from the word of God if it is not his word to us. If it's just the ramblings of madmen, if it's just human thoughts saying one way that somebody lived or thought about God one time a long time ago, there's nothing in it for us. See, if this isn't the divinely, divinely inspired word of God, what we see in Colossians 1, 9, and 10 is that it would be impossible to please God because it's only through the reconciliation that Christ has for us that we are ever able to please God. So if this is not the word of God, then we have no idea how to please God because it hasn't been revealed to us because Christ might not have done what he said he did. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says this, For in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Colossians tells us that Jesus came to reconcile us to God. But that's nothing but fantasy if this is not the divine word of God. It's hope. But it's I hope so hope. It's I hope it's true. 
I hope that happened, but it's not fact. And if Jesus didn't reconcile us to God, then we're still dead in our sins. Think about Colossians 3, verse 10. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians tells us that we are being remade. We're being renewed, made into the, something new by the glory of God. But if this isn't the divinely inspired word of God, then you've never outgrown your past. You are not a new creation. Your past still has hold on you. Your anger still grips you. Your fears and your anxieties still get to plague you, and you have no hope of something new because there's been nothing new for you to put on because there's nothing new in Christ. If this is not the divine word of God, man, then we're still dead in the oldness of our sin. Men and women across the world and throughout the ages have looked to Scripture to find hope in times of turmoil, to find peace through anxieties. They look to the Word of God for answers in their confusion and in their questions. They've looked for it, to it for strength in times of trial. But here's the reality. If the Word of God is nothing that it claims to be, then it cannot be anything that men and women have ever hoped it to be. If it is not everything it claims to be, then anything you've hoped to gain from it is loss. Let me encourage you here. If you've ever experienced peace from God's word, if you've ever felt relief from anxieties, if you've ever found answers to your questions and to your confusions, then your life proves that it's true experientially you have proved that there is something of value here that goes beyond the world and that's divine in nature. And the good news is that it is. It is divinely inspired. It is the Word of God. It is not the works of a man, but it's God revealing His Word and inspiring these authors to write, write these words to my saints. Every word, we call it plenary inspiration, that's the fancy word that pastors like to use. Every word of this is from God to us. And that includes Colossians. So what we're going to study this morning, what we are studying right now, is the divine word of God that reveals Jesus' glory. The second thing we see is that Colossians is written for you and me today. It's easy to think like, okay, this is like a dusty old book. I, I bring it on Sunday, I put it away, and it sits on the shelf, collects a little dust, and I, I kind of brush it and bring it back the next Sunday, right? Like, it, maybe this is a good dust collector because, you know, it spoke in a language long ago, and we don't really use it in this country, and, like, it spoke to the people of Colossae, but, like, for me, like, nah, there's nothing there, right? But Colossians is written for you and I today. Look, look at what it says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. You're like, look, Brad, that proves it, right? It was for them in Colossae, but hang on a minute. Bear with me. Check this out. First century Colossae is not too unlike Indy's east side, where I think most of us live. Think about this. In its heyday, Colossians was a thriving city of trade. 
Colossians was like an epicenter of trade. It was situated right along a major Roman trade route, and so it was like this big pathway that trade would occur back and forth on, and so they were situated right next to it. So as people were moving and coming and going, they could come right to this city to do business. And, and it was situated right by the Lycus River. The Lycus River, it was a really chalky river. There was like big chalk deposits and the chalk would fill the water. And, and so what it did is it, it made that river perfect for uh, making dye so that they could dye clothing. And so they also had really fertile pasture lands away from the river that were really good for raising sheep. And so in Colossae, they were right along this major trade route. They had thriving industry in raising sheep, shearing the sheep, dyeing the wool, and then they could make garments. They were famous for making garments. They were like the leader of the Roman world in some of this stuff. They were a thriving industry. Green pastures, raising flocks, large chalk deposits, making dye, thriving garment district, and it lay along that major trade route. Y'all know like Ford opened a big manufacturing plant there. International Harvester moved in and they started making trucks and like, like work was booming, trucks were being made. Life was thriving. Money was flowing. You know, the mall was crawling with people and hustling and bustling with business, right? This is Colossae. The schools all had A ratings. Everything looked good. Does that sound like the heyday of somewhere you know? Like the east side of Indy. If y'all know the history of the east side, Ford had a major manufacturing hub here. And they brought hundreds and hundreds. I, maybe, somebody can maybe fill me in. Maybe it was thousands of jobs. International Harvester had a big manufacturing plant here. Hundreds, maybe thousands of jobs. Butler University was here, and they had the elite professors, these, these epitomes of wisdom living here. This was a thriving district in Indianapolis. Listen to what happened to Colossae. You know, when Paul wrote to Colossae, they had moved the trade route, and it moved a couple of cities over uh, near a city named uh, Laodicea, and uh, Hierapolis, two other sister cities that were in the same valley. They moved the trade route. When the trade route moved, you know, all the, all the manufacturers, they thought, well, you know what, let's go over there because now that's where everybody's going. So all of the industry packed up and moved out. They moved out because, you know, labor's starting to get more expensive, right? So we're, we need to go somewhere cheaper for labor. And so they shipped all the jobs to Mexico. And man, does that sound like East Indy? Colossae was on its way to becoming a dying city when Paul wrote to it. It was a shriveled up nothing of its former glorious self. No more sheep shearing, no more garment industry, no more trade route. The city was dying, and it doesn't even exist today. Within, I think it was like 100 years, 200 years, Colossae was gone. It was just ruins. But y'all, what happens when the money dries up? What happens when the jobs dry up? What happens when the trade dwindles in an area? There's nothing new in human history. What happens? People start looking for hope somewhere. Man, I can't keep the lights on. The rent's due. Man, I got, I got to feed these sheep. I can't even sell the wool. And people start looking for hope. How am I going to make ends meet tomorrow? What's coming tomorrow for me? Let me tell you where they turned for hope in Colossae. The city was filled with polytheism. Polytheism is a fancy word that means many gods. Let me tell you about a couple of these gods. There was Artemis. Artemis was worshipped as the goddess of the hunt. 
Y'all know like, hey, trade dried up and now I got to go hunt for my food. So Artemis, like, can I worship you and sacrifice to you and then bless me as I go out and hunt and hopefully, hopefully I can catch me some food, man. Because, because I, I, man, I need some hope. So let me worship Artemis. They worship Demeter, another goddess. That was the goddess of the harvest. You know, those chalk deposits that were uh, famous for being able to help them make these quality dyes. They were able to dye garments like none other. They, they didn't make for fertile land anywhere near those chalk deposits. So they had specific areas where they could farm and, and build their agriculture. And okay, well, Demeter, can, can I worship you so I can have a good crop harvest here? Because if it's not going to be here, then, then I'm stuck and I'm sunk and I'm not going to have food to eat. And they start looking for hope. Our Demeter, would you help? And so they worship Demeter. This is, this is one, uh, Serapis. Serapis, it, it cracks me up. So um, when I was reading about Serapis the god, um, Serapis wasn't even a god to begin with. Like they knew they made Serapis up. Like the Greeks, when they were there, they had a god and the Romans came into the area and they were like, hey, you know, uh, that's not our god, this is our god, but I bet we can take the best of your god and the best of our god and marry them together and make a new god and, and you know, that'll actually unite us too and then, and then it's for the social good. We can make one god that everybody can worship and we're gonna be unified under this new god, Serapis. And, and, does that sound like stuff going on today? Hey, would you give up on some of these truths that you hold dearly? Would you submit some of those? You can still believe in the name of Jesus. Just let go of that whole sin thing. And he's the only way thing. And let go of all that nastiness so that, hey, we, we can believe how we want to. And Jesus is this good. Like, can, can we build a different God? And that's what they did here with Serapis. And so they worship Serapis, this invention of their mind that they knew they had invented that God. That's no God at all. But people were looking for hope. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 3 and 4. He says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure with sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. Y'all, when people feel hopeless and they're scratching for some hope, man, whatever sounds good, that's what's coming. Whatever sounds like it might provide hope, that's what I'm going for. Let me build something that fits my mold for what hope looks like, and let me go after that thing. That was happening in Colossae, and it's happening, it's happening today. Does all this sound for, this is Indy's east side, Colossae, you could pick it up, bring it a thousand, two thousand years forward, and plop it down on an easy side. Man, and that's us. Y'all, we had a heyday. But the east side of India is a shell of its former self. I recognize I come here as a newbie, and so I don't say that disparagingly. I say it recognizing some of the things that plague the east side. People are looking for hope in drugs. People are looking for hope in their alcohol. People are looking for hope in relationships around them. People are looking for social good and unity for hope. People are looking to whatever they can to scratch out some hope because, man, thing, man, we're not in our heyday. And what's the dominant religious force in our community? And it's not just our community. Man, it's all across the U.S. right now. The dominant religious force is something called humanism. Let me share with y'all what humanism sounds like. 
This is the definition that the American Humanist Society gives to humanism. It's a philosophy of life that denies the need for a God or supernatural order and instead affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that contribute to the greater good of a society. Y'all, that sounds like Serapis. Like, Serapis is not a god. It's a human invention. It's a philosophy of can we unite people together so that they can all feel good about what they're worshiping and maybe we create some social good out of it. Let me break it down. Humanism is the belief that humanity is the greatest agency in existence. The highest thing that exists is people. So let's worship the human existence. Human, humanism elevates personal fulfillment as the greatest aspiration. And honestly, if you and I can just live happily, and like, if you and I can be happy and, and find our personal fulfillment in whatever we want to find it in, man, then we're going to have a good social order. Like, let's just all try and be happy because when everybody's happy, ain't nobody trying to go and pop somebody off. Like, everything is going to be all right. That's humanism. You see, in Humanism sounds like this. Truth does not help me understand my personal experience. My personal experience defines truth. That's what humanism sounds like. That's what humanism smells like. And that is the prominent philosophical force in play in our society right now. You see, in humanism, there's even room for your God. There's room for Jesus in humanism. As long as your Jesus is simply part of your experience and your existence of personal fulfillment, and it doesn't impede me on my journey to personal fulfillment. Because that turns Jesus not, he's not a God anymore, he's a philosophy. Because he fulfills you. You see, in this understanding of the world, there's only room for a God who's subservient to the human will. And again, that's no God at all. And what Colossians, the divinely inspired word of God, has to say to you and me is that Christ is exalted over all. And Christ is enough. You don't need the Christ and personal fulfillment. You don't need Christ and humanism. You don't need Christ and a really good philosophy to find happiness, to find peace, to find salvation. Colossians tells us that it's Christ over all. That's what it told Colossae when Paul wrote it, and that's what it tells you and me today. But listen, look back at the text again. In chapter 1, how did Paul address them? to the saints and, what is it, faithful brothers. Y'all, this world is going to pressure us to give up Jesus, to let go of truth. It's going to pressure you. Would you just give up a little bit, just a little bit, so that we can all live a more ordered society and everybody can just be personally fulfilled? 
Paul's writing to faithful saints who in the midst of the polytheism going on in Colossae, in the midst of the pressures, hey, we, we married two gods together. You can, your God's welcome in this too. In the midst of those pressures, he's writing to saints that remained faithful. They didn't give an inch because they knew if they gave an inch, they'd give a mile. They didn't give up an inch of truth because if they gave up that inch of truth, Jesus is no longer the only path to salvation. And there's no rightness with God. There's no perfect sacrifice. And sin still reigns. Y'all, so it is for you and me. Today, people are going to tell us there's room for God so long as he plays nice with everybody else. So long as he isn't exclusive. So long as Jesus doesn't impede on somebody's pursuit of personal fulfillment. Here's the application from this. Do not move the foundation. Don't move the foundation. Y'all ever sees, see what happens to a house or a building when, when the foundation crumbles? The building on top of it crumbles. I got to tell y'all, one of the scariest things I've ever done is I agreed to help somebody do some remodeling on their house. I have enough construction knowledge to get myself in trouble. Um, and so I go in and they're like, hey, uh, the main beam that holds up the entire house in our basement, we're going to cut it out and replace it. So I'm like, all right, bet. <laughs> so we got some rip saws and we ripped that beam out and the house started sagging, drywall started cracking. I was like, this whole thing is coming down on top of us, man. Luckily, we got it back up and we didn't die, but I mean, I'm standing here today. But y'all, it's like, but, but the damage that was done when the foundation of that house was moved, y'all, the foundation wasn't even ripped away, it was just replaced. And there were cracks in the walls. There was drywall falling from the ceilings. The house was coming apart at the seams. Don't move the foundation. It's what Paul would say to us today, because if we do, the whole house crumbles. Read Colossians 1, 15 to 17 again, because it's so important. The foundation for you and I is the gospel. It's the exaltation of Christ in our midst. That's the foundation because he is the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and kingdoms and dominions, whether rulers or presidents or authorities, anything that has existed only exists by the breath of Christ, is what Colossians tells us. All things were created through him. And not just through him, but all things were created. What's it say in the text? Y'all are looking at me. Look at your text. What's it say in the text? All things were created through him and for him. This all exists for the glory of Christ. Every bit of it. Let's glorify him in the church. So when the world pressures you to loosen your grip on truth, so that we don't impede on the feelings of others and so that we don't impede on the, the personal fulfillment. They're going to ask you to soften your stance on sin, expand your stance on grace. The world's going to ask you to move the needle on Christ alone. The world's going to ask you to accept the doctrine of relativism, that all truth is good truth and can be true at the same time. But remain faithful. Continue to stand on the sure foundation of the gospel. That's what Paul would say to us there. 
faithful saints remain faithful. Let's look at the last bit here, the end of verse 2. This is the third thing we're going to see out of the text, that Colossians is written that we may find grace and peace in the exalted Christ. Colossians 1, verse 2, look at the text again. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. So in order to understand Paul's blessing of peace that he writes, this is, this is a standard greeting. You see it in lots of Paul's letters, but I don't think Paul writes it just willy-nilly, like, uh, what am I going to say? Hello, hey, how you doing? No, grace and peace, because that sounds good. No, Paul wants to write these letters so that we experience the grace and peace. So we have to understand the thrust of Colossians. And I've given it to you guys a little bit, but I want to walk through it again. Let's walk through a few verses together to find out if we're going to experience the grace and peace that come from God, what is Paul writing about so that we can identify that grace and peace? Consider this, Colossians 1, 18. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. You see, in our day and age, when every religion is promoted as equal or as a valid option on the buffet of self-fulfillment, when people say, hey, you know what? On an even playing field, we have Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity and, and whatever other ism you want, like just buffet pick it, buffet style. Go for what personally fulfills you because they're all equal truth. When every house of worship is, is hailed as equal and on par, what does scriptures say there's one church with Jesus Christ as the head because he is preeminent in everything that's the thrust of Colossians consider with me Colossians 2 6 and 7 therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving y'all in an age of shifting truth when the goalposts of truth and morality keep moving, and when no one can get their ideological footing, does it feel like that sometimes? Like, man, the goalposts are always, today this is true, but tomorrow that's true, but oh, uh, you know what, tomorrow, like, this is moral, or, or this is moral, or I can say this, and I can, does it feel that way? Like, the ideological goalposts keep moving? When that happens, Colossians shows us that in Christ Jesus, you and I can put down roots. And we don't have to be fearful of the shifting sands of morality and the shifting sands of what is true and what is not true. That's what Colossians says, because Christ is exalted as a sure foundation for our roots. Consider this, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. See that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Y'all culture today would say that your past has to define you. How far back in your social media feed can I go before I find that one nugget that then I can blast you with, like put you on blast? Like you will never outgrow the worst thing you've ever been. You will never outgrow the worst thing you've ever said or done. You're no more than your worst because your past defines you. That's what the world would say. But in Christ Jesus, we can put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed 
And Christ is exalted in the renewed self. The newness of the saints. Consider this. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In an age when racial tensions are flaring, racial conversations are taking place, and we're, we're not quite sure where the voice is, and we have rising anxiety over how we're going to relate to one another across, across ethnic lines, what we see is that Christ is exalted over all of this, and in Him the dividing lines are broken down, and we are united in Him. Paul wrote Colossians. The thrust of Colossians is that so we can see that Christ is exalted over all things in this world. And if he's over all things, then get this. He's enough. He's sufficient. Y'all, this is important because what was true in Colossae is true today. Every other worldly philosophy is vying for your attention. Believe in me. Every other worldly philosophy is trying to subvert your foundation. But hear what Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions and the elemental spirit of the world, and not according to Christ. Be captivated by Christ because Christ is enough. Don't be captivated by the rest. You see, in Colossae, people were being told that Christ plus wisdom equals salvation. You need Jesus, but you also need to know like these secret truths and these secret things, and if you have Jesus plus knowledge, then, then you have salvation. In Colossae, they were being told Christ plus human tradition and practices equals salvation. Y'all, you need Christ, but man, you also need to be circumcised. You need Christ, but you also have to keep the Sabbath. You need Jesus, but you know, you also need these other traditions and festivals and days, and then, then you can be saved. Y'all, they were being told in Colossae, Christ plus other angelic beings. You, you need to worship Jesus, but you can't forget all of these other angelic hosts and angelic beings. Worship them too, because you need to worship Jesus, but you can't forget them. But if you worship all of them, then, then you have salvation. That's what they're being told in Colossae. Today, we're told it's Christ or something equals salvation. Today, we're being pressed to accept that Christ plus social justice equals salvation. Today we're being pressed to accept that Christ plus maybe a little Buddhism equals salvation. We're being pressed to accept that Christ plus compassion and acceptance equals salvation. Y'all, I listened to another pastor on the east side here uh, a while back say that it is not in Jesus that you are saved because you cannot be saved alone unless you help redeem the social justice for your neighbor. Like, that's what the east side is hearing, that you have to redeem one another socially if you ever hope to have salvation with God. Y'all, here it is. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Y'all heard that before? Christ plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is enough because Christ plus anything equals nothing. 
If you add anything to Jesus, then what you have is nothing. If you add anything to the gospel, then what you've got is no longer the Jesus exalted in scriptures. It's the Jesus plus your philosophy. Christ alone stands as the exalted, preeminent figure in God's plan to restore creation to himself. And if we add anything to Christ, then our hope of salvation, our hope of gain is lost. Because it's Christ alone. That's the thrust of Colossians. And Paul says, grace and peace to you. Y'all, because Christ is exalted and because he's preeminent, because he is sufficient, because he is enough, because he's our sure foundation, then the grace and the peace he offers to you and me is enough. Consider this. In Colossians 1.10, we find God's grace to help us walk in a manner worthy of him. Grace simply means something given to us in a time of need. It is God's provision in our time of need. So when we talk about grace and peace, we're talking about God's provision and his peace that comes from experiencing his provision. Colossians 1.10, he helps us walk in a manner worthy of him. Apart from Christ, that's impossible. Christ is enough. In 120, we find the grace of God to reconcile us with him through Christ. Y'all, Christ is enough. In 2.2, we find God's gracious encouragement in Christ for those who are downtrodden. Y'all, Christ is enough in all of these things. As God's grace aids us in our time of need, we will without a doubt experience the peace of Christ that abounds for you and I. This is what he says in Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Paul starts his letter, grace and peace, and then he shows us where to find that grace and peace, and it's bound up in the eternal, pre-existent, exalted Jesus. Amen? Man, that's what we find this morning, is there's grace and peace sufficient for you and I. Some of the original manuscripts of Colossians actually have in this introduction, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ. Y'all, that's implied here. Some of the manuscripts said it explicitly. They were not the oldest manuscripts, and so we go by these oldest, but it's implied. The grace and peace of the introduction isn't only the grace and peace that come from God the Father, but they come from God the Father in the sent person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find our grace and peace. Y'all, the mantra today in all the advertising, cover all of social media, is that if you want to experience peace, look inward. Learn to be a better you. Discover your inner truth. Y'all heard these things before? I read them like every day. I spend way too much time on social media, (laughs) y'all. It's all over the place. Discover your inner truth. Live the best version of yourself and become who you were meant to be. This is what our culture around us is telling us. Find your inner happiness. Y'all, the world would tell you the pathway to peace and grace is in here. I am here. Colossians is here to tell you it is not inside of you that you find that peace. It's in the exalted Christ who's enough. And it's available to you as we walk according to his grace. The message of Colossians is Christ overall, y'all. Peace 
is not found in the world bending to me, but in me bending my knee to Christ. That's where it's found because he's over all and in all and through all. And because we were created in him and through him, he's our sure foundation. So here's where I conclude it this morning. We experience the grace and peace of God as we stand on the truth of the gospel. That's Paul's message in the introduction to us. Paul shows us that the Colossians is divine truth. It's not simply his opinions. It's divine revealed word of God. Paul's introduction shows us that Colossians is written not just for the people who lived in Colossae, but man, it's, it's so fruitful for you and me today in the society that we live in. Remain steadfast under the pressures of this world. Paul's introduction shows us that when we stand on the realities of the gospel, God's grace and peace are available to us in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Colossians to you because if we stand in anything else, if we add anything else to Jesus, then the grace and peace are lost. Let's be rooted on Christ. Amen? Let's pray.